This is a Broad Pods production. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. People say life is a journey, not a destination. But how do you know you're on the right path? If only we could see the signs when they appear. Well, I'm Amy Kwa. And I'm Jo Stanley. And on A to B, we speak to fascinating people about how they navigated their way to be here now, having profound impact on the world. We hope our conversations will help you reflect on everything you've been through to get here. The triumphs, challenges and bumps along the road. And if you haven't already, find your own map to what matters. I mean, it's the menopause. The number of people I talk to about what a pelvic floor looks like and... I do love your diagram, which you say never take to a guy. No, they'll be be appalled. I'm asking all these experts and they're going, well, the striations of the lateral. I'm going, does it look like a chop? Does it look like the woven bit of a seatbelt? Like, what does it look like? Like, help me. Jo, our guest today, has supported millions of women and girls through some of the most critical times of life. Her book, Up the Duff, I'm sure you remember that. That was my Bible for all of my pregnancies. Uh, We are talking about the esteemed, award-winning, record-breaking author, Kaz Cook, who's written all sorts of things to help us to navigate life. I adore her. She just seems to be able to read our minds from generation to generation, answering every possible question that we might have about our bodies and what our bodies get up to. And now her latest book is called The Menopause and she is uncovering all of the mysteries that surround the menopause. I learned so much from this book and from our conversation. She is just amazing. I mean, buckle up, people, because Cass Cook does not mince words. She's in the studio and what a great honour it is. Kaz, it's just a delight to have you on A to B because I feel you are a part of my A to B, so here we are. Oh, oh my gosh, you're a part of so many A to Bs. You are a part of my A to B. We will get to that, but well, yes. I am thrilled to be here. I, as uh, I was saying as I came in, you know, I've been doing all this publicity for the It's the Menopause book and really ended up feeling so burnt out. And then they said there's one more and I went, no. And they said it's Broad Radio with Joe. And I went, okay, because, oh. you know, I, I think what you're doing is, is fab. And so I said, yes, because sisterhood and I'm really thrilled to be here oh, with you. That warms my heart so much. And gee, you gave me a good hug when you walked in. You give good hugs. <laughs> 
As does Mimi. Good hug. Well, we haven't seen each other for a while. We were both on commercial radio subject to management. The kind of man in 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 um, in rock distressed jeans who would enter a room scrotum first <laughs> and tell you the way things should be. And uh, they were always wrong. It was it was a it was an incredible batting rate. It was yeah. zero for zero. But anyway, um, you know that man still wears those distressed jeans. Oh, so it wasn't it's just one funny. of them, Joe. I'm gonna I'm gonna show you a list afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> what a time! But let's get back yes. to you. There's so many things we want to learn from you, but the most present thing at the moment is your new book. It's the menopause. I mean, menopause is so hot right now. Let's say so hot flush right now. Yeah. But this book, as always with your books, so incredibly researched and I feel is the best resource to go to. You know, forget the Instagram. There's so much on Instagram about menopause at the moment. You know, it feels to me like we've lost a bit of the stigma of talking about menopause, but instead we've swapped in a fire hose of fake wellness and fake products and people trying to make money out of us. And that ends up polarising people, right? You get people at one end going, I'm only going to take medical stuff and people at the other end saying, I'm only going to take natural stuff. Now, there are useful things from both of those philosophies. And what I'm trying to do is say, look, there's a buffet and for all these different like 35 plus symptoms, there are different possibilities. It's a lot of self-help things that are really important and that are evidence-based and not everyone can take medication for various reasons. Also, a lot of people are just getting things wrong. They're being told stuff on Instagram and in ads. Like when they Google, often the first 10 results are an ad for something or a private clinic that wants to sell you uh, the products on their shelves. So, Oh, and aren't those algorithms on Instagram good? And Mm. don't they just listen in to your conversation? Oh, and as soon as you turn a certain age, you start getting those ads that say, Woman over 40 or 50 or 60, however old you are, with hideous wrinkles needs help, you know. <laughs> and, and, and it always seems to happen when you're at your lowest and you think they're right. Yeah, they no, how do, do they need know? help? Yes. Uh, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> they must it, be able yeah. to read our energy levels as well at the time. I just want you to take us a little bit just for a moment into the stigma because you just touched on that and what I find that you know makes me kind of chuckle and also cringe is that when I worked at Channel 9 at A Current Affair and I was doing menopause stories with Jean Hale's foundation and mm-hmm. interviewing women who were going through menopause, I was not allowed to use the phrase menopause, the word menopause or the phrase of the menopause, on television. So did you have to say women's health of a, women of a certain age? A like change a, in life. A change in oh life. Oh, my God. Wow. You know, that is so... <laughs> Mimi, and it made the story very difficult to report. And, Mimi, I, in this year, doing the publicity tour for this, a producer at a national current affairs show told... It's uh, probably the same one. To, it's not, but I won't go any further but told the publicist, oh, women, uh, people don't want to know about menopause, it's yucky. Mm. And he was a man aged 40. So mm. no, nothing on that show. I was on a morning show on a commercial uh, free-to-air network and at the end of the interview, the male interviewer said, obviously this is a fantastic book, but you can't give it as a gift. <laughs> and I went, what? Why did that? 
And then it was cut off. (laughs) She's going because of the stigma, right? Exactly the same thing that, you know, this, it's unbelievable. It's, it's centuries old, this idea that periods are poisonous and toxic and yucky, that menopause is, and you would think that if doctors then, not now, but were saying, you know, periods are mysterious and dangerous and corrosive and can make a penis fall off. I'm not making this up. <laughs> and if you were having your period and you walked past a fruit tree, you would kill all of the fruit. Mm. Um, oh. With rage? Is it yeah. rage? <laughs> no, simply because you're a woman having a period. Yeah. Um, the rage would make it uh, <laughs> burst into flames. Um, but then so you would think that the menopause would be, oh, thank God you're, you've stopped doing that dread work of the devil and yet no once you went into menopause you were accused of of being a witch because of physical and mental you know symptoms of menopause Mm. so and is it because we cease our functionality in that we can't have children once we hit menopause look I think it's even more fundamental and creepy than that I think it's I think it's going young women are attractive Mm. Older women are not, according to that ridiculous, you know, like Paradigm. like set of yeah, and therefore we are of no further use. Mm. We're not interesting. Um, oh, because we simply can't arouse. Yeah, mm. and you know that there's that you'll you'll be able to see it on. Have you seen it, Mimi? There's this thing on YouTube, and can I swear on yes, the podcast? Please, yes, please. Um, and <laughs> Joe says yes, please. I say with hesitancy. Yes, okay. <laughs> Um, it's in context, darling. It's in context. Um, it's an Amy Schumer. I think it's the best thing she's done. Oh, I do love Amy done. Schumer. And I don't love everything she does, but I love this. And it's Tina Fey. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus and it's Patricia Arquette. And they're all having lunch under a tree and they're celebrating what they call their last fuckable day. <laughs> and that is they're not going to get hired by producers anymore because they've passed a certain age. Mm. And uh, it's a really great idea and it's really well executed. And I think there's something of that. There is this this picture that's been painted of older women as dotty, cross, useless. I mean, even the theories about menopause where people go, oh, the only other animals that have menopause are whales. And I think they're saying, they're actually discovering now there are other animals. It's just that no one's bothered. The research of every aspect of menopause is hopeless. But they've gone, well, it happens in whales. And the theory that we've got is a biological reason is that the Older whale women, sorry, the older female <laughs> whales, whale, the whale, the whale women. women. I want to join that. Wow, I mean, I, I whale a lot. So yeah. I feel like no, I fit there that is thing. a definite whaling uh, aspect. Um, but the female whales who are older and no longer fertile help with the, with the calves. So the idea is that in humans, grandmothers live as long as they do so they can look at and women you know survive menopause and get older than that even though they've outlived their use because they can help with other people's babies it makes me furious can women not just be themselves and do a bit of macrame and go on a road trip they shouldn't have to be (laughs) babysitters for everybody else you know even even that theory kind of shits me. Yeah, it sucks. I have to say. Also, I think sometimes, well, it supports my, I have a theory that they assume that older women are cranky and dotty 
because they see older women not giving a shit and living their life doing macrame and going on road trips and they think they can't possibly be happy. Yeah, yeah, And because we cease to actually care what other people think, their assumption is that we're mad. And exactly, (laughs) and lonely, Mm. and there is a fundamental misunderstanding of how important female friendships are or, you know, friendships with your gay mates or your straight mates or whatever, but your people and how they often outlive your relationships. You know, girlfriends will last longer in your life. And I think the last chapter of It's the Menopause, because I uh, surveyed almost 9,000 women and the book is full of their quotes. Which I must say is actually profoundly liberating, I think, to be able to read quotes from other women. Real people, yeah. And I just felt so seen yeah. because I would read these quotes and think, oh, my gosh, that's me. That's how I feel. Yeah, so the last chapter is the quotes about women feeling free, Jo, mm. and they're the women going, I've changed my priorities, I don't care that I'm invisible now to some people. I mean, you know, there's there's different, everybody's different and some people don't feel exactly the same way, but almost universally it was, thank God I'm through this, I don't get periods anymore I can choose what I want to do with my life, whether it's being a grandma or being, you know, an adventuress. I love that old-fashioned word. Yeah, so I just, I was so happy that there were so many optimistic quotes and lovely mottos that people had. And it because I think we often just get this, this idea that menopause is just terrible. And and sometimes some people breeze through it. Some people have a really hard time with a, a lot of symptoms. So it was fantastic to be able to have that sense of of freedom and and sisterhood. Well, I do know that you do an incredible amount of research for your books. And I feel like you've told me in the past that it does freak you out a little bit that you might get something wrong. Oh, you remember that? Yeah, I remember you saying that to me. Yeah, mm. it's true. And I, like a lot of women, I think I'm getting more anxious as I get older about things like public appearances and, you know, live events. And also, well, you know, I started as a journalist very young, like a month out of school uniform, I started as a baby journalist at the age. And it was always drummed into us the terror of making a mistake. And the year before I joined, I think it was, one of the cadet journalists had cost the paper 150 grand, which in 1981 was huge because she had gotten the name wrong of someone being charged in court. So the, a person with a similar name, you know, looked like they'd committed a crime. And so they, they sued. sued. Information. And so, and you know, it, and everything you wrote would go through the subs desk, which was a desk looking like a really grim dinner party with no food of a whole lot of older men. <laughs> you, that is and, a brilliant way to describe it. And if you if you made a mistake, one of them would stomp over to your desk and lean over you. And when you're 18 and it's your first sort of real job and there's a, I thought they were about 100 years old, they were probably like in their 40s, most of them, and they'd lean over the desk and go, I remember one saying to me, you said that a jumbo jet weighs as much as a blue whale. Uh, where's your evidence for that? And I just went, I read it in a thing. <laughs> <laughs> just anyway, a very big lesson. So terrified. And in fact, in one of my books, Up the Duff, I talk about the iron levels in a dried apricot. So I'm saying there are a lot of things you can eat that will help really boost your iron 
levels because everyone thinks it's just red meat. So here's a few things that have a, anyway, I got this furious letter. This is completely wrong. And, you know, and dried apricot only has 0.3 milligrams of foof and how dare you. (laughs) And I was so, I couldn't sleep for three days. And and they said, you can't check it out because of protocol. We will get someone in the office and we will get someone in the office to check that. Took them three days and I was bang on. It was exactly right. I did up my apricot intake and I felt much better thanks to you. It's there true. You it could be an apricot placebo. We don't know. But um, but yes, I, I'm so, and because medical information changes so, I've got medical information in Up the Duff, I've got medical information in Babies and Toddlers, the sequel to that pregnancy book. I'm very careful in the way I talk to girls in both girl stuff books, 8 to 12 and 13 plus. It's because you can't, for example, just talk about eating disorders to young girls or they will see it as a recipe. There, you know, you, you have to be very careful about the way you talk about certain things and sex so that you don't frighten them and, mm. you know, you don't have to do this. But someone's probably already shown them on a phone by the time they're 14. So it's all quite tricky and a hell of a lot of work goes into it. And I do remember discussing with an editor once and she was about 65 and I was sitting in her office and we, we were having quite a heated discussion about how to talk about A-N-A-L sex. And what do we say to girls who are being pressured into doing this uh, as a form of contraception or just because a guy wants to do it because he's seen it on his phone mm-hmm. You know, how do you talk to girls about that and say, well, this is what it is and you don't have to do it and it will probably hurt. And there are parents who are like, don't tell my daughter about that, but it's kind of like they already know. Yeah, They've mm-hmm. probably already been asked about it, Yeah, you know. And I remember talking to a whole group of parents and saying the statistics are pretty much the same in most Western countries. Half of 15-year-olds have had some sort of sex when you say that to parents of teenage girls, they the room goes <gasps> because everyone thinks their 15-year-old has had no experience and, and statistically that can't be true. Mm. So it's also about getting information to people before they need it but not so early that it freaks them out. But, I mean, the weight of that makes me feel a bit nauseous thinking about that. I'm not that person who could have that responsibility on my shoulders. Well, do, like, do you, can you feel but, that maybe? But, like, that's just, well, I can, but having read the end notes in your book, The Menopause, I can see how many experts in inverted yeah. commas, but actually fully qualified, I must say, with lots of letters after their name that you couldn't even fit into the book. That, <laughs> and you acknowledge that too. Yeah. But you have cross-reference with so many people. You've checked everything. That's a good point. And that I, I think that is one reason why I can be more confident about those things and knowing that I will update a book. But you're right, Joe, because some of those chapters about sex, about mental uh, health. When I first was writing in 2006, 2007, which was when the first girl stuff, I had to make those chapters up. I had to make up the chapter in in Babies and Toddlers about talking to your toddlers about emotion because I couldn't find, and now there's heaps of stuff around and I try and include contacts in the book of if people want further information. But that that is the scary bit when you're sort of going on instinct, but then I will also, as well as consulting experts, also get them to read a chapter, and I try and share that around. So between people in different states, and but I always want—I did 
once say to a gynecologist, I, you know, I don't want someone who's just an academic. I want someone who's at the coal face or should we call it the vulva face? <laughs> I think that's important. <laughs> yeah. If you're talking vulvas, yeah, and you like, want to have seen one. <laughs> you want you want someone who keeps a, is in public health, who keeps abreast of the latest things. And you, for example, with um, up the duff, I'm making sure this time I'm going to someone to to read it for the next update, who's head of obstetrics and midwifery at a public hospital, and not just a tiny private hospital where it's a very different vibe and a very different way of doing things. Well, I mean, I think there are great doctors working in both places, but yeah, I like to share it around. And, and gosh, they've been so generous over so many years. I mean, at least once I'd established, I think, some kind of reputation, which I think happened with Up the Duff and with Real Gorgeous, which was even before that about body image and so-called beauty. And I mean, I've only ever been asked once for money from a consultant and it was someone already being paid an enormous salary in a government organisation, health organisation, and everyone else, that the, the professors, the people who are world-renowned, the people who are, you know, working spokespeople for their professions membership group, you know, the busiest people, the most knowledgeable people who would, you would imagine would say, oh, bugger off. Mm. But they get it, right? They get that they want this information to go out mm, to the public. To I mean, I'm just astonished. One of the things in It's the Menopause, I'm astonished that there are gynecologists and people who are selling women this thing called vaginal laser procedures or sometimes called things like the Mona Lisa touch. Mm. They use a, vagina, a, a laser on the inside of the vagina. They cause low-level burns if things go well and really dangerous, awful things if it doesn't go well, including the walls of the vagina fusing together because of the oh burn God. wounds. Oh my God. Horrendous. And even if it works, the only independent studies done on it show it does nothing. It, you just What is you it supposed just to heal. do? Allegedly help with urinary... Uh, not not doing unexpected we so often absolutely disproved that 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 happens in the independent studies that it makes for a moister vagina so it's better for the man mm. to have sex with you um, and I read as well tighter but that is really actually the healing that's happening it and is it the swells swelling. because it's been burned unbelievable and I spoke to a gynecologist who'd been offered this machine to be leased at 150 grand a year and that's why it costs hundreds of dollars to have a so-called treatment and then they say you'll need another one in six oh, months and another one. And once you've healed up, we're going to do this to you again. Oh. And, like, talk about rage. Sometimes there are extreme, not just hormonal reasons, but real reasons for women to feel rage. Mm. Wow. That's, I mean, there's, that makes me very unwell thinking it's about it's, it. It's hard to and, absorb, and breaks my it? heart. breaks yeah. my heart. Yeah. So I just want to let women know, mm. don't do that. Yeah. You know, and only 2% of the women in that about 9,000 women who answered the survey, only 2% had done it and not one of them said they thought it had done anything beneficial for them. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know, it's been an interesting journey for you, Kaz, to go from how I first very first remember loving your work, which was Hermione. Hermione the Modern Girl. Hermione the the Modern Girl. So your beautiful cartoons and she was just so glorious and kind of wacky. That's so nice, Joy. And now you're doing these really important books and really getting very important information to women. But how does that happen? How do you go from being a cartoonist Ah, to this? Very good question. And I couldn't do it unless I had been a journalist. And I think what journalism, especially old school journalism, because I'm 9,000 years old, when I started journalism in, in the 80s, there was that fear of making a mistake, but also they made you do well things that I was terrible at, like finance journalism. I was sacked off sport after my first day because my report of the Swans match in Sydney was apparently incomprehensible. <laughs> so <laughs> they said they couldn't even tell what sport it was. Uh, so anyway, mission accomplished there. Um, So you had a bit of a crack at a lot of different stuff that you didn't know anything about. And what, I don't know about you, Mimi, but what it taught me was I was this incredibly daggy, just 18-year-old with plaits on the top of my head. I looked like a Heidi had escaped. I instantly thought of Heidi then. Um, And wearing my mum's dresses and terrified you know, from this suburban background, which was not sophisticated. I didn't know how the world works. I remember going out for my first restaurant thing with other people and not really understanding how it was going to work. I'd never been out in a group of people where everyone paid different. Like, you know, I think the most our family ever did was go to the Swagman and I think Kentucky Fried Chicken a couple I mean, of swag- times. So, Swagman well, was can fancy. we just go back a step then <laughs> or maybe a few steps? What is it that propelled you towards journalism in the first place? If you ended up going into a cadetship literally straight out of high school, what were you like as a child? What was your family situation? Why were you Just, interested in that? There was no one in my family interested in what I was interested in. You know when you read interviews with people and they go, our house was full of books and music. <laughs> and I just- <laughs> Just think, Christ, our house was full of mints. Um, <laughs> the meat or yes. the lolly? <laughs> Definitely the meat. Why was it full of mints? That's I just what we ate. I get it. No, in the 80s we it. ate a lot of mints too. Yeah. And we used those electric fry pans. Oh, exactly, Joe. My mother's still got it. I'm sure it's going to do her in in the end somehow. But anyway, so I was so unsophisticated but I loved reading I had found newspapers. I was the only teenager I knew who would go every Sunday and buy the National Times, which had Patrick Cook as a cartoonist, Michael Fitzjames as a cartoonist, just these people who became my idol. And then there was just this, it's always chance, isn't it? It's always, Mm. there's always luck. Then you make what you can of it, but it's always luck. And I was babysitting for 
a couple who ran a bookshop in across the road from the Sandringham uh, railway station, which was my local railway station, and he specialised in comedy books. So I could, so when I was working there and people were coming in and buying their Mills and Boone or, you know, whatever, I could spend the downtime looking at books of English cartoonists and, you know, satirical books. And I, I remember really thinking, oh my God, I can, I could do this. Like, I don't know how. But maybe I could do this. So were you sketching and drawing at that yep. point? You were trying yep. to emulate what they were doing, trying yep. to find your own style? Yeah, all of that. But my own style was completely ripped off by my, uh, <laughs> I completely ripped off Ronald Searle, who was at the time an, an incredible cartoonist. And he, or mo- most of his characters had pointy noses and that's why Hermione has a pointy nose. It comes from there. But then, of course, I became a mum. I didn't have as much time. And I remember people asking me, do, you know, would you rather be a cartoonist or be a journalist? And I was like, I'm going to do both. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I'll, have, I'll have plenty of time, I imagine. Um, I'll make an appointment with the baby to breastfeed her at, say, 7.30 and then maybe, you know, have no idea. So then the writing became much more of a thing. But as I was saying before, you can't be shy when you're a journalist. You ha- you had to ring people. We didn't do it just off press releases then. You had to ring people and go, excuse me, Mayor, you know, uh, I'm from The Age. So you had that. That was the paper I worked for. So that was my in. I would say, you know, I'm from The Age and please answer of these course. questions. All of a sudden you've got that credibility of yeah. being with The Age. But how did you get to The Age? Like what, what was that? Well, I just like? applied and I can't remember how I knew, but I think I knew because Corrie Perkin, who is a well-known bookseller now and runs the Sorrento Writers' Festival, she had gone to the age uh, from my school. And I didn't know her in my school. She was older than me. But somehow, and I don't remember these bits, but somehow I rang her and said, can I talk to you? And I went to talk to her in the age canteen and she gave me some hints. So you just... You had to go through three interviews and it starts with, I think, 1,800 people who apply and then they, and I think that having read all those satirical books, I think I had developed quite a cheeky tone and so I got through the first one and then I don't think they have any idea really what they're doing but most of them were from, you know, private schools or, you know, like a different background although it was much easier to get in without you know, a uni. So they took four people from uni and four people straight from school the year that I got in. Mm. Then the second one, I had a fight with one of the two interviewers who said, do you think it, how the hell was I supposed to know? He goes, do you think a newspaper should tell people how to vote? And I said, sure, if it wants to, I didn't know. (laughs) And he... And he was, just so (laughs) happens that they do from time to time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they were all doing it then. And he said, well, I think that's wrong. And I went, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for some... Fair enough. When do I start? <laughs> exactly. For some bizarre reason. Also, I didn't think I was going to get it. So I think I was a little bit more loosey-goosey than I... But that was the third interview that that really clinched it. I walked into the big mahogany sort of huge desk. I mean, to me, I remember a desk the size of an aircraft carrier mm. right at the end of this really big room. And the the acting editor was there. It's 11 in the morning. He has about three fingers of whiskey <laughs> in a, 
in a big fat tumbler. He's smoking a Winnie Blue, and there's 17 butts about, you know, approximately in the ashtray. It's 11 in the morning. Him through the, smoke. the The fug. And, um, I walked in and I'd been reading at the secondhand bookshop these um, crime novels about Melody Blaze who wore thigh boots and was set in the 60s and she used to stride around and give people, you know, cheek and she was. Anyway, I walked in, I looked at him, I thought, what the hell am I doing here? This is bizarre. And I said, is that cold tea or are you just trying to impress me? (laughs) (laughs) And I think I, I don't know where that came from. It just came up in me. I, I apparently thought I was Mae West and he laughed and I found out later he laughs about once a year. Wow. And so I think that cheek, I think it was cheek. I didn't know enough to be as intimidated as I should have been. Yeah, it was that naive confidence. Totally naive mm. and but also nothing to lose and then in the first few months, there was this really posh restaurant critic who worked for the paper and he was known as a bit of a, you know, creep. He was one of the of the restaurant critics. And he came over to my desk and said, um, oh, I was hoping that you might be involved in, you know, reviewing something and would you like to come to lunch with me at Glow Glows, which was a really posh restaurant at the time in Melbourne, like one of the top three which I didn't know about. And I said, oh, thanks, but I bought a Rivita. (laughs) (laughs) He looked completely puzzled and went, right, all right, and sort of sort of rotated like a robot a bit and then went away. And I went up to the library where my beautiful gay friends were working. They'd become friends. They worked in the library. And I went, oh, I this just happened. And I, I said I'd bought a Rivita and he looked really confused. Anyway, after they'd picked themselves up off the floor, they told me some stories about how other women had been treated by this person. So I was very happy about that I had my Rivita. I think there's a lot to be said for when you don't know the rules of the game, which it seems you did not, that sometimes you can really push yourself into situations that are great for you. Yeah, I I mean, I think also because I was such a doofus, I realised later how many relationships there were with, you know, senior staff, with some of the much more sophisticated go-getter women and realising that that was so common in those times, that older, it was almost like it was a free-for-all, I think, when the young people came in and... You know, I was 18 and my first boyfriend from there was 27 and I shouldn't have been with him. And a few other people were with, but, yeah, I was Mm. just, I didn't really understand the nuances of power structures and all of that stuff. Who did 18? Well, I think the young kids now are better. I think they get that age difference is not necessarily good. I think young women, like my daughter's 25, and I think her generation is so much better about sexual politics, gender identity, sexuality. You know, in some ways some of them have been protected a lot and the, and sort of cotton wooled a little bit, but I think they're actually much better at a few things. But I think I think back then, so I'm a little bit younger than you, but not much. Oh, actually, we're probably the same age. I just think I'm 78. <laughs> <laughs> when I was 18, which is in 1990, yeah, 
I think we were still defined by other people's opinion of us. Whereas now I'm yes. hoping I'm hoping that 18-year-olds now yeah. understand, partly because of the work people like you have done, mm. are understanding that your value is intrinsic and it's not related to validation from older men and jobs and oh, beauty remem- and yeah, all of that. I can remember thinking, oh, if he's interested in me, I suppose I'd better... Yeah, front up and go out with him. Although I did go out with one senior journalist when I was working in Sydney and he asked me out for dinner. And again, this is my lack of sophistication. Also, hadn't asked around about him, idiot, and was sitting with him in the restaurant and I remember the main causes had just arrived and he said to me, oh, by the way, I'm in an open relationship with my wife. And I went, sorry, and I'd never heard the phrase and I went, sorry, what is that? What A, wife, B, what is an open <laughs> relationship? And he said, oh, we just give each other permission to. And I was so flustered, pissed off, felt mm. like my time had been wasted, didn't know what to do. So I just went, <laughs> I just said, thank you very much for letting me know. Put my fork down, picked up my bag and walked out of the <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you. So when when did that sort of indignance turn into a recognition that inherently I think we are all, you know, feminists to a point, but that you actually wanted to express that through your work? You know, that's a great question and no one has ever asked it. And I love that you've used the word indignance because if you've just got indignance, you just get frustrated, right? And you just feel put upon and that can really, you know, you can end up just feeling bitter. But I think where it came from from me is knowing that I I walked into lots of worlds and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what it was going to be like to be pregnant. I didn't know what it would be like to have a baby and then a toddler. I certainly didn't have the information I needed as a teenager about confidence about my first period about, you know, and I had some information and it's not like my parents didn't or my mother didn't tell me anything, but Where I think I've always come from is, and it's why I get really annoyed if people call me a guru or an expert, because what journalists do, and you know this, is that we are the, especially me, lowest common denominator. We have to go and find out what the truth is from the experts and then tell people in a way that they understand, which basically is in a way that I understand. I mean, it's the menopause. The number of people I talk to about what a pelvic floor looks like and you know, you've got these. I do do- love your diagram, which you say never take to a gynecologist. <laughs> no, they'll be appalled. <laughs> but, but it was the only way that I could kind of visualize it. And I'm, I'm asking all these experts, and they're going, "Well, the striations of the lateral." I'm going, "Does it look like a chop? What does it look like? <laughs> Give me a. Is it a trampoline yes. type situation? Yeah, does or- it look like the woven bit of a seatbelt? Like, help me. Um, so that's what I think it is. It's not just the indignance. It's the what's being withheld from us or what sh- what information do all girls and all women need to know, both emotionally and physically, that will help them and give them a head start so, you know, you can take a, one of these books to the doctor or make some notes before you go and say, these are the things I'm feeling. I think it might be this, but what's your, and if you get a doctor who says, you know, oh, you've just got to put up with it or, you know, mm, come back in three months if that's still happening. No, sorry. Mm. You know, it's something that's hurting, getting in the way of your life and you need help. I, I do think partly what it is about, and I, maybe you're right, this is the indignance part, when I look back, it's all about saying to girls, 
and women be bolshier. Mm. I find the books like girls' stuff and and the ones that are actually for our younger women, young women and and girls, that what it's done is allowed me to open conversations with my daughter that I would have had, definitely would have had, but because the book was there, it allowed her to respond in a way where she wasn't really awkward and like, oh, my God, I'm having this conversation with my mum. She's just like, yeah, okay. What I love about the girl stuff books is that girls have them often in their own room under their pillow mm-hmm. or sort of slightly hidden so that they can read things themselves. And they don't, you know, my experience with it is that they don't read in 13 plus, that's when the subjects of sex and drugs and alcohol are introduced. And, but they don't read it until they want to which is often before they're about to start going to parties and stuff like that. This is what I was, I once had a fight with Ida Butros to name it. Can to, I just say, drop. thank you. I wish I'd been there <laughs> with, to hold the pistol on a, on a cushion <laughs> well, or in the was, drawer. <laughs> yeah. It was in the strangest moment in between, like in an ad break during, stu- you've done Studio 10. So, you know, it's in this ad break and we were talking about telling our kids about sex and she said, oh, you know, you don't tell young girls about sex. And I was like, well, what, what would I say when my daughter asks me how how babies are made? And she said, well, you lie. <gasps> and I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, you don't need to give them the information. And I said, well, well she's talking about age-appropriate That's, well, that's, that's how people get assaulted her, and don't say. Yeah, but I said to Gosh. her, she will. She only takes what she is able to absorb exactly. at this age and then in another year about, she asks again. That's and then not she, about her having sex. No. That's just about how babies happen yes. too. So yeah. you, you do do the age-appropriate thing. Well, I'll tell you a thing that completely refutes that and that is I so I don't have an, a sex chapter in Girl Stuff 8 to 12, but I still have a line about if it feels yucky and someone's doing something that feels sexual, you've got to tell a trusted adult about that. And and, and that's much more expanded in Girl Stuff 13 plus. And I got a letter from a mother saying, how dare you tell girls in 13 plus that sexual assault can occur? Mm. Because I was going to tell my daughter when she turned 16 and you have robbed me of the chance as a mother. And I wrote her a long letter and explained that that might be great for her daughter, but other girls were being assaulted way before the age of 16 and needed to know it was wrong, no matter what a coach or a religious person or someone in the family had told them, and they needed to know what to do about it. And then she was not placated, but then I got this incredible anonymous letter from someone about a court case that had happened and it was two daughters who had been abused by their grandfather and when the judge asked the older girl, why did you go and tell your mum, she said, I read in girls, I know, I bawled my eyes out. When I read girl stuff, I, that's when I knew it was wrong and I didn't want it to happen to my sister and so I told my mum. And if I've done nothing else in my entire career... And this is the thing, like you, I've I've got those two books for and they my were two in daughters, school. and I haven't read them. So thank God that you've written what you've written in them, because so many parents will have bought them for their <coughs> daughters, but not read them and not actually know the profound information that's in there. And some people read it with their daughters, which I think is fine and great. I mean, people know their kids better than anyone else, you know. And some kids are better having it under their pillow. Some people want to read it with, especially the eight to twelve year olds, might want to read it with their 
with their mum. But yeah, and look, sometimes I it, I do feel that, you know, real fear, Joe, about stuff. But then when things like that happen and people come up to me and say, <laughs> people come up to me and go, oh, you know, uh, Alphonse is two now. And look at that whole thing. It, it has cleared up and it was a great birth. And I'm thinking, darling, <laughs> I, <laughs> I do not know who you are. <laughs> Well, we are so glad Kaz knows who we are because we literally cannot get enough of her. So that's why we're bringing you part two of this conversation where we deep dive into menopause and how you can get the help you might need. We'll release that episode at our usual time of 7am on Tuesday. So stay tuned for more of the inimitable Kaz Cook. Please see our show notes for our acknowledgement of country and all the people who help us put this podcast together, as well as interesting links to our guests' work and other references we've mentioned. We're Joe And Mimi from A to B. Rate, follow and get in touch on our website. And let us know whose A to B you'd like to find out about. We can't wait for you to hear our next conversation. 